Our interview for the Apex today has been 211 miles per hour and McLaren F1 been shot at whilst road testing a Ferrari California has previously held the Guinness Book of Records record for the fastest lap of a UK circuit and has recently got back from being the first journalist to road test the new, the new McLaren Speedtail. Indeed, we are delighted to welcome the renowned journalist and esteemed road tester Andrew Frankel to the Apex interview series. Today, we're going to talk a bit about how he got into the automotive world, the art of road testing, the evolution of motoring journalism, and also hear a bit about his Instagram-only magazine, Drive Nation. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us, and let's begin. Yeah, it's a very great pleasure. Very happy to be here. So what were your first automotive memories, and was there a particular car that started the passion? Uh, yeah, um, I, I kind of didn't have a choice. I, I grew up, I had two older brothers and a father um, who were completely obsessed with cars uh, from, from literally my my earliest memory. I, I don't know where my father got it from because his family weren't interested at all, but um, they would, they, I mean, they, they like sort of, you know, food and drink. They were just part of my life. Um, I don't think it occurred to me that it, it, one had any options of these things. Um, if there was a car, he had a four and a half litre Bentley. He always wanted to own a vintage Bentley um, for reasons best known to himself. And in about 1970, when I would have been four, he bought this four and a half litre Bentley. And I guess it arrived at the same sort of time that I was sort of becoming aware of cars and everything else. And uh, that car is still in the family. Uh, so it's, God, it's been in the family 50 years now. Um, and yeah, I mean, if there was one car that got it going, it, 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 it was that. And it's a car that... Um, I've, I've done all sorts of things in that cars over the years. I've driven it massive distances. I've raced it a little more classic. I've done everything. Um, so yeah, that, that car probably actually means more to me than any other. That's a, that's a great choice. And those pre-war vintage Bentleys are just superb. I've done a couple of rallies myself in a four and a half litre. And then how, how did you end up going into automotive journalism specifically? Um, uh, honestly, the honest answer to that question is by being, is, is by being terrible at everything else that I tried. Uh, <laughs> I, I never thought... I don't think I even thought about being a car journalist because it's like sort of thinking you're going to be an astronaut or a movie star. It wasn't something that I thought that somebody like me um, would ever get to do. Um, but I tried to be something in the city. I think I was probably the only person who managed to lose money in the city in the end of, at the end of the 1980s. I was a, a bond dealer and a commodity broker, uh, and I got fired from both those jobs fairly quickly. I then tried to become a lawyer um, and got through about a year of the degree course and dropped out of that. Um, and yeah, it was desperation more than anything else. I was sitting at home, um, no money, no prospects, no qualifications, no nothing. Um, and a friend of my brother's just alerted him to the fact that Autocar were advertising for a job for us or like a junior road test assistant. Um, and the only reason I even um, applied for it was because by the time I saw this ad, uh, it was so, it had been around for so long, I kind of presumed it had already gone. So I rang up. Um, to ask if the job was still there. And they said that it was, but only because they'd had so many applicants, they hadn't had time to go through everything. Uh, and the only smart thing I did was I asked if there was anything I could do to make my CV stand out a bit. Uh, and they said that they'd stupidly only asked for people to send in their CVs and no examples of their writing. So if I wrote something, that might help. Um, so I did, um, and they presumably saw. I couldn't even type. So my brother had a secretary who typed up some nonsense I wrote about a Renault 5 that I had. I sent it in and I got an interview and uh, yeah, took it from there. So very lucky, really. I wouldn't recommend it as a way for most people who want to become a motoring journalist to get into the business today. I kind of, I kind of winged it and fluked it and, and lied quite a lot as well. Um, but I got in in the end. And had you always read uh, magazines, automotive magazines from a young age? Was it something you'd always been interested in? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I, I, I don't know if you ask this question to lots of people you do, but for me, it was always Car Magazine. I mean, Car Magazine 
in the 1970s um, when you had guys like Doug Blaine and Mel Nichols and Leonard Setright and George Bishop and then going on to Steve Cropley and Gavin Green. I mean, they were they were the guys who kind of lit the fire. Um, and um, they were my super... I can, I can remember once I was sitting in a, in a hamburger bar with my father. I must have been about 11 or 12 um, in Holland Park. And a red Ferrari drew up outside... And this big bearded bloke who I instantly recognized as Steve Cropley got out of it and came into the hamburger restaurant to pick up his takeaway or something. And I just became, I sort of kind of went puce and wanted to hide under the table because it, honestly, to me, it was like watching Marilyn Monroe walk into a room, which I know sounds slightly strange, but I mean, this man was a sort of God to me. And uh, my father suggested I go and introduce myself, which was clearly ridiculous. Um, and then, yeah, for many years, and in fact, still now, I, I get to work with a bloke. So, um, yeah, so it was, it was the guys who edited Car Magazine because they were fearless in the 1970s and the 80s. Um, they wrote beautiful. I mean, their writing was so good. The magazine looked beautiful. And they did all these incredible escapist stories with supercars. Um, and, yeah, I've, I've been reading it ever since. Yeah. Yeah, funny enough, one of our previous interviewees, Graham Hunt, said exactly that. It was a, a Mel Nichols article in, I think, 1977, where he took, in Car Magazine, where he took uh, a Lamborghini oh, Countach's yeah, uh, yeah, silhouette and Uraco, and he said yeah. that's what really lit the his passion for yeah. for automotive yeah. the automotive world, which is interesting. And uh, who 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 were your inspirations out of that out of that bunch of people? Well, I mean, I guess it was Nichols because you know he was kind of the first person. I mean, if you read a very kind of um, atmospheric, colourful drive story these days. Um, somewhere down the line, that writer, even if it's only indirectly, will have been influenced by Mel Nichols because he was the first person who started, that I'm aware of, uh, who started writing those sorts of stories, who, who kind of went beyond the, you know, the information. This is a, you know, the sort of straightforward road test. This is a car. This is what it does. And actually realized that there was um, a rather bigger, better job that could be done. There was entertainment to be had there as well and actually started crafting stories um and yeah i mean they to me these things were magic i mean i can yeah in the back then when i was sort of away at boarding school i always knew which day of the week the car came out um and i used to rush down to the news agents and if it wasn't there it kind of ruined my day and if it was i couldn't wait till i got back to the boarding house i'd have to sit down on the pavement outside and at least read something because i was so desperate to get my teeth into it um, and, and I think, you know, today, obviously, the media scene is so utterly different. There's so many more different ways and in many very better ways in which you can consume it. But I don't think people necessarily do that sort of thing so much, um, which is perhaps a bit of a shame. But, you know, I was very lucky to, 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 to have been brought up on, you know, what was world class journalism, which just happened to take place in an automotive context. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you, you mentioned that, and obviously these days there seems to be a constant requirement for information to be condensed. You've got Twitter, which requires a maximum of 280 characters, I think it is. Instagram is obviously a bit better. I think it's 2,200 character limit. Uh, and then you know, let's not even talk about the millennial light, uh, attention span like myself, which is apparently no longer the blip of a throttle. Uh, do, do you think there'll always be a place for long-form automotive journalism like Mel's, or is the world going to all bite-sized pieces? No, I think I think there will always be a place for it. And in fact, um, we're seeing a bit of a resurgence. Uh, and you will have seen magazines like Magneto and Road Rat. Um, you know, we always thought once, you know, the internet turned up that you know, print would disappear. Uh, and that hasn't happened. Um, it will take a different form. There will probably be less of it. But I think that 
there will always be people who want to consume um, stories about cars, not just in a sort of, you know, I, th I think we'll do both. I mean, you know, and, and as a writer, that's fantastic. I mean, one of the things that I am um, feel most blessed to be able to do is, you know, write tiny little bite-sized chunks, be it for Drive Nation, which I think we'll talk about in a minute, or on Twitter, um, and also to be able to yeah, write books. Um, you know, I've recently um, completed books about Bentleys and Aston Martins, which have gone on for, you know, tens of thousands of words. Uh, and between that, I think there will be magazines, and I think increasingly so. There will be subscription only. They'll probably be quite expensive, but they will look beautiful, and they'll have big, long stories in them. And I think I don't see any reason why you know, there's so many technologies, haven't there, which have kind of, you know, which have been there. And then everybody said, oh, they're going to be, you know, everybody said that books would die when e-readers came along. And people said that, you know, um, that radio would die when television came. And, and, and it never happens. Um, the market changes, but the demand remains. And I, and, and I think it will. That's a very long answer to a short question, isn't it? But it's, uh, yeah, I think we'll, yeah, we'll be okay for a while yet. I guess regardless of the medium, there's always going to be a requirement for road tests, which is, of course, one of the things you're, very, you're most famous for, and not only for autocar, but I think you've been the, the chief road car reviewer for the Sunday Times for 15 years and so on. I was, yeah. Uh, yeah can, can, can you tell us a bit about the art of road testing? Whew, um, the art of road test. Well, write for your reader. I think that's number one. Uh, I think there are lots of people who do what I do who write for themselves uh, or understandably they write for the person they think is buying the car but the person you know if you write about you know if i'm you know i've just been i've been lucky enough to have been in a couple of you know thousand horsepower hypercars in the last couple of weeks and i know that 99.9 if not 100 percent of the people who are going to read those stories are not going to be in a position to buy one of those things um so, you know, writing a sort of buyer's guide to a McLaren Speedtail isn't really, you know, serving your reader very well. You want to put him or her in the driver's seat and just, you know, and, and that's really, um, that's really the job. Um, and to understand what is important, obviously, in every car, there, there are a different set of priorities. Um, and yeah, to, to be able to understand what is important about them and, and to communicate, you have to do, be able to do three things in my job. You have to be able to drive um to a to a reasonable standard you don't have to be lowest but you have to be reasonably good um you have to be able to understand the car um i mean ronnie peterson for you know the 1970s f1 driver he was an amazing bloke and an incredible driver but he used to drive his engineers insane because when they say what's the car doing he couldn't tell them he just couldn't understand I mean, he knew because he was such an instinctive driver he just knew how to drive the car but he couldn't set a car up because he didn't really understand what the car was doing. And we have to understand what cars are doing so we can explain to readers what's good and bad about them. And then obviously the third thing you have to be able to do, which is the most important, is you have to be able to write. You have to be able to communicate um, like that because otherwise the first two are meaningless. If people don't read what you write, they're not interested in what you have to say, then you know, you've, you've fallen at the first fence. So yeah, that, that, that's pretty much it. Um, and, and if you're a freelancer like me, um, write the story you've been asked to write to the length you've been asked to write it and submit it on time. It really is as simple as that. <laughs> Good advice. I have to say, out of all your road tests, I think the one I'd be most envious of was your 1994 test of the McLaren F1 for autocar, where I believe you hit a remarkable 211 miles per hour. That must yeah. have been a pretty special day. It was a weird day. It was, a, it was May the 2nd, 1994. And I, and I only remember the date because it was the day after Ayrton Senna died. Um, so, I mean, you can imagine landing that road test was not the matter of a moment. It still, to this day, is the only 
independent, um, genuinely arrived at set of figures that have ever been recorded for an F1. Um, and, you know, as I said, it had taken a long time to set up and it was all arranged for Bruntingthorpe on May the 2nd. And then Ayrton got killed on the Sunday. Um, and, you know, you, you know, as well as I do, what that man meant to mm. that company. Uh, and I just kind of thought they weren't going to show. I just kind of thought that they would all be, they would just think, well, we, you know, with the last thing in the world we want to do is, is, is be sort of, you know, messing about with the idiots from Autocar. And yet there they all were. I mean, Jonathan Palmer was there and Ayrton, I know, was his absolute hero. And Gordon Murray was there, and, you know, who designed Ayrton's championship winning cars and everything. And I, I, you know, I actually remember the professionalism of those people as much as I do the car. I mean, the car itself was just a completely different level um, to anything. Any, I mean, we'd driven, you know, XJ220s and F40s and that sort of thing. By them, but the F1 was a completely different level, um, and that was that was fascinating, and it was um, it was a memorable experience for that. But the context is really everything, and then once we'd done all the numbers, um, and uh, we were done at Bruntingthorpe, I drove it up to North Yorkshire, and I, I remember that drive as much for the relief of handing the keys over once I got there with the car and myself still in one piece, as I do anything that happened on the drive. It was so fast um, by what we'd experienced. And you do acclimatize and you do get used to it. I drove it again about a year ago. Um, and it still felt still feels like a properly fast car, but not, you know, it probably isn't as quick as a 720S now um, in, in, in the way that it gets down the road. But at the time, I'd never experienced anything like it. And it was... Um, it was a surreal experience because I got to the stage because I was quite young at the time. I was still in my twenties. Um, I just sort of, I, I really worried that I wouldn't be able to help myself and I, and I would just end up doing something really, really stupid because I didn't have the self-control to hold back. Um, and yeah, I can just remember getting up to, I think we we're in Helmsley in North Yorkshire and just giving the car to somebody else and thinking, thank goodness <laughs> I've got away with it. Yeah, you don't want to do a Rowan Atkinson in a McLaren F1, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, no, ideally not. No, but but do you know what? Um, you know, I I I, I know Rowan, and and and, yeah. and you know, I, I know. But I mean, it's it, Rowan is a fantastic. I've raced against Rowan. He's a really really good pedaler, and and an F1, um, particularly if it's in any way down, is not an easy car to drive. And mm. and, and you know, there there are lots of other drivers who have had many bigger accidents than Rowan had. But yeah, absolutely. You know, these days we take all the stability systems and the safety systems so much for granted. And it's quite interesting to drive a car with 627 horsepower, which weighs 1134 kilos, absolutely naked with nothing to protect you. Um, because yeah, it does kind of remind you, but you'll know this from racing old cars, you know, historic cars. One of the reasons yep. I love historic cars is it's just you and it. And you know, if you cock it up, you've only got yourself to blame. Yeah, absolutely. And then I, I see in the last few weeks, so 20, 26 years later, you were the first journalist to drive the McLaren Speedtail on the on public yeah. roads. Yeah. yeah. How did what was that like, and how did it compare to the F one? Can't really compare the two, just because the circumstances were so different. Um, I mean, the F one was. I think we were in it for three days. Um, you know, full figures on on an airfield. You know, huge amounts of time on the road on the moors. Um, the speed tail was uh, last week. That was a much more sort of a grab and go. It became apparent that it was possible. Um, and I literally, I went and got the car from Woking. Um, and funny enough, with another speed tail in convoy. So there were like two speed tails together, which was quite a strange sight. They just wanted to have a, a chase car. Um, I just went and drove it around West Sussex. So I haven't driven it on a track. 
So I haven't done crazy speeds in it. I certainly haven't strapped any timing gear to one. Um, I mean, McLaren will tell you that one is not the replacement for the other, despite the fact that it's got that amazing center steer driving position and they're only making 106, which is the same number um, as they made F1s back in the mid-1990s. But it's, you know, it's much more of a sort of um, luxurious long-distance car rather than a sort of lightweight supercar. Um, so, I mean, fant- I mean, sense of occasion is the same because, you know, it's great to be first. If you do what I do for a living, being first to anything, as we were first to road test the F1, as I was first to drive the speed tail on the road, you get a real sense of pride out of that. Um, but, you know, my, I, I regard the speed tail as unfinished business because what I haven't done is driven it properly fast somewhere yet. Um, so I'm, I'm, looking forward to, I'm looking forward to doing that another time. Yeah. And, and you, you talk about your nerves, obviously, with the F1 returning it in one piece. Has a road test ever gone drastically wrong? And is it true that you once got shot at mid-test? Yeah, no, I did, I did get shot at, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yes, it was uh, Ferrari, California in Sicily. I was doing those, you know, we have to do them on every time we get out and drive a car seems these days. We, we have to do sort of, you know, lurid oversteer shots, which, I, which I, re- I don't mind doing them on the track. That's fine. I don't really enjoy doing them on the public road because... There are too many variables, but, you know, you kind of have to do it. And so I was doing it uh, and making quite a lot of noise. And, yeah, so you sort of drive through the corner and then you turn around and you go back and you and, and photographers being photographers, you kind of have, sometimes you have to do it 20 or 30 times. And I noticed when I was turning around at one end, um, there was a bloke standing there with a young boy, um, not looking terribly happy. Um, and the next time I came around, he disappeared. So... Um, I thought that was okay, but he'd returned the time after that and he had a shotgun in his hands. Um, and I thought that was interesting, but I thought he might be out bagging rabbits or something. And then the next time I came back, he wasn't there. But as I turned around, a shot rang out above the car. Um, I can remember turning around and trying to get out of there while at the same time being as close to under the dashboard as I could possibly be because I was in a convertible car. So I, I was quite vulnerable. Um, and I, so I, I, I got away with that and went back to the photographer and said, I think, I think that's probably enough of that for now. Um, as far as stuff that's actually gone badly wrong, uh, I guess the worst, although we actually kind of got away with it, um, was the DB7 Aston Martin in, when would it be, 94, I guess. Um, so this was a, a, a completely last minute thing. Um, somebody else had got a DB7 and they were going to publish and we heard about it. And so we had to rush something into print. So I went and collected a car um, and I drove it to Wales, did all the photographs um, and then handed it to a colleague who was to drive it to the Millbrook test track to get all the figures from it. Um, while I went back to the office and started writing the story and then he was going to phone the figures through. Um, and he went to Millbrook and did the figures and was recording a maximum speed on the car when at 160 something, the car just went up in flames. Um, And he managed to get it stopped, but it didn't have a fire extinguisher on it. There were no fire extinguishers nearby. And by the time um, uh, any kind of fire truck got got to it, I mean, the car was completely and utterly gone. So yes, we totally torched the DB7 prototype. Um, but you know, the, the, the one thing that I was pleased with is, is because it's such a fraught business, we always did the top speed run last so that all the other figures were in the bag. So, so we got the numbers. Um, we probably didn't get the top speed, but that was the only thing we didn't get. And um, yeah, the only price we paid was a somewhat flambe DB7. 
Good to hear. Well, funny enough, our interviewee last week was Ian Callum, so I imagine he wasn't sort of uh, too pleased about having a, a smouldering wreck return back uh, after all his work. I don't think there was much to return, to be honest. I think by the time they put it out, there was, there, there was no car left. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. And you know, I imagine over the last 30 years or so, you've driven some of the world's greatest roads in probably some of the, the world's greatest cars as well. And then living in the Wye Valley in Wales, I'm sure you have some of those roads right on your doorstep. So for someone thinking of dusting off a sports car in the garage after lockdown, where would you direct them to in the UK? And if they were go to the continent, again, where in the continent would you suggest road-wise? Yeah, I mean, driving in the UK, I mean, I think the key increasingly um because the roads are getting so busy um and you know obviously lots of cyclists there is i mean if i want to go and drive a car properly i just set an alarm you know you can go and drive you know you could you know so where i am in the y valley we have the brecon beacons pretty close by and okay it's quieter at the moment because of covid but normally you know you could go up there in the middle of summer thinking oh wow wonderful roads and you can't actually drive a car properly on those roads because it's caravans and it's congested and it's bicycle and, and it's bicycle and it's all sorts so i think job one is wherever you live set an alarm if you've got a car that you want to drive it should be worth getting up early for um and certainly during the summer where it's kind of lighter you know four half past four in the morning you know i quite quite often will get up and go and do a couple of hours on deserted roads in a great car be back before anybody else has woken up and you'll you know you'll have more fun doing that than you will in days driving around um, in daylight but in the uk um yeah i mean you know the welsh mountains um are fantastic uh you can't go to well you can go to dartmoor but there's a speed limit all over it now which is a bit restricted north yorkshire moors we used to go testing at all the time because it's very quiet up there and there are some amazing roads and obviously there's scotland um West coast of Scotland is still some of the best places you can go driving uh, and Snowdonia. So you know, we, we, even in our, our small congested little country, there are still great places that you can go driving cars in Europe. I would say the most underrated place to drive a car is Northern Spain. It's so quiet there. There are some really, really good roads there. Um, and you know, you can go to Italy and a lot depends on what time of year you go and that sort of thing. Um, and you know you definitely can have decent drives in those places germany is is it really is quite fraught just because, because of the, the congestion but yeah if, if there was one place that uh, i would go if i wanted to reliably drive great cars in europe probably northern spain interesting i know you share my passion for, for classic cars and historic racing indeed you co-drove my father in the tt at the 1999 good revival and his austin healy sebring sprite and yeah. i think sadly the title of your subsequent article in motorsport of sprites and gremlins rather summed up that weekend which was not a huge success indeed i think 21 years later i can still remember some of your exact wording from that article including that its handling was schizophrenic with this i think, I think the certainty of a bullet ricocheting off a building <laughs> which yeah, I- um wasn't a glowing review but i think it, it did get subsequently improved um but i guess given given the the imperfections and character of old cars like my father's sebring sprite you're against the, the clinical efficiency of a lot of modern cars you in general do you find old cars more exciting to write about oh 100 I, I find old cars more exciting to write about drive about be in and about um in in in, in all ways um i uh, you know I, I, my my day job in the main, I'm very lucky. I still get to um, test. I don't really do um, classic road cars anymore. Um, 
I do a few, but not many. But I do. I still do get to do quite a lot of track tests of all racing cars, um, which makes me. It's probably that's the, that's probably my favourite thing um, to do professionally. But but you know, I always think of my day job as being um, testing road cars, and and my 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 hobby, my passion, if you like, is is old cars and old racing cars. Um, I mean, you will know as well as me that there is. It's all about involvement to me, uh, and modern road cars just distance you from the sensations of driving. Um, and I don't want that. I want to feel what I'm doing. I want to feel the road. Um, I want to feel, you know, on the stage, not in the crowd. Um, and I don't want to just, even, I don't even want to, just want to be a director, you know, telling a car what to do. I want to feel part of the action. Um, and that's, as you know, you know, absolutely as well as me, that's what old cars bring you. Because frankly, because they are a bit useless, because they need to be managed, um, you have to use your skills. I mean, if you've got a, if you're racing a car on drum brakes, you know that if you just use the brakes to the maximum, you know, from lap one, you won't have any by the end of the race. Um, you know, old tires. Um, you know, you have. <laughs> I race um, a Ford Falcon in the Spa six hours every year. I've done it for God knows how many years. Um, you know, more than a decade. And the car, if I'm honest with you, is absolutely useless. Um, and it's probably what I love most about it because it just has to be um, cared for and managed and looked after because, you know, A, if you don't, you'll you'll bin it. And even if you don't do that, you won't finish the race. Um, so, yeah, no, old over new every day of the week. Yeah, it's always a partnership, not a case of you being just a passenger, which is the key. Correct. But um, and in 2018, you founded Drive Nation, an Instagram-only car magazine with Dan Prosser, which I've been thoroughly enjoying um, these last last couple of years. So, what's it all about, and what are you trying to achieve with uh, Drive Nation, or have indeed achieved? Doing, it's obviously doing very well. Yeah, I mean, Drive Nation's it's interesting. I mean, partly it's um, I've just always had this. Um, desire to do different things which is why i do everything from you know little tweets to enormous books uh, and as much as i possibly can in between but dan realized that nobody was doing car journalism on instagram and okay it's a mainly photographic platform so i kind of get that but we suddenly realized that there is an enormous audience out there um and even if we just tapped into a tiny tiny amount of it that would probably amount to rather more um readers than you might get if you did a car magazine um and so he very kindly asked me if I wanted to sort of fall in with him. Uh, and we've now got um, 36,500 people read Drive Nation, and despite the fact that we've had no money to invest in it. So it's just had to kind of grow organically. But we've got a podcast as well, which is quite popular. And we do um, little other bits here and there. Um, we are starting to attract a bit of investment now. Um, but more than anything else, it's just, it's just a fun thing to do. It's, it's fun for two reasons. One is I just love working with um, my mates, um, and I like and I really like the format. But secondly, you know, if you do what I do for a living and you're a freelance motoring journalist, you're kind of, you know, at the beck and call of your clients. And if you know Autocar or Motorsport or anybody else I work for want me to go somewhere and do something, then that's kind of what I go and do. Um, with Drive Nation, I can do what I like. I can think to myself, well, I'm going to write about this this week, or you know, I'm going to ask Dan what he thinks about writing about that, and and it's paddling your own canoe um, and. Um, that's probably the best thing about it, apart from the um, the people on the other side, our audience, who are fantastically interesting, interested, involved, engaged, enthusiastic bunch of people, and um, and we have a real rapport with them. So it's it's totally different to anything else I do, and I I love every, every minute of it. 
Superb. And before we go to our quick fire questions, my last long form question is, is it true that you held the Guinness Book of Records uh, record for the fastest lap of a UK circuit? And also as a footnote, I believe you even wrote it into the book yourself. Is that correct? Yeah, so that was a complete con. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, it came about because uh, I happened to be sitting in the auto car office one day when the telephone rang and I, I picked it up and it was a bloke from the Guinness Book of Records saying, uh, we need someone to edit the motoring pages um, because whoever was doing it had disappeared. Um, and literally because I picked up the telephone and I went, I'll do it. And it was my first ever freelance gig and they paid me 50 quid for it. Um, but it suddenly occurred to me because basically I'd always wanted to do, uh, I'd always wanted to do 200 miles an hour, um, which I managed to do slightly later on. And I'd always wanted to get in the Guinness Book of Records and all the records just looked absolutely impossible. But when I suddenly found myself editing it, I suddenly thought I can invent a record. Um, but I didn't want, the problem was I didn't want to set a record. I wanted to break somebody else's record. So what I did is I invented this record called the fastest lap of a circuit, of, of, a, yeah, of a circuit by, of a UK circuit by a production car. And I then got my boss, Howard Lees, to go up to Millbrook in a Ferrari Testarossa and drive, I think he drove around at about 170 or so. So that was fine. So that was a, that, that was a record which went into the book. And then Ferrari replaced the Testarossa with a 512TR, which was a faster and more stable car. So I just went up there and did 175 and bang, I was in the book. But, you know, yes, I, I, I broke a record which I created simply so that I could break it. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, a, a bit of a con, but, you know, hey-ho. And I got in again recently and rather more prosaically for driving a car through 14 countries on one tank of fuel, um, which was a profoundly tedious thing to do, but uh, I got, it got me back in the book. So, yeah. Brilliant. And then on to our quick fire question. So who is your automotive hero? <sighs> Sterling Moss. Yep. Good choice. Historic cars. I'd love to hear why. He's one of my um, heroes as well. Okay, because um, uh, well, he, he's the only he's the only person like that who became a very close friend of mine, um, and I think actually not for how fast he was, but for the way he went racing. Um, you know, the fact that he gave up the 1958 World Championship to Mike Hawthorne um, just out of honour, um, and I think that I, I can't admire someone who is not um, as engaging out of the car as he is in it and i think that sterling was the complete racing driver um and i miss him very much yeah i couldn't agree more i've been lucky to race against him once uh, if actually it was his last race at Le Mans when he he got out of his porsche and he said that was the first time in my whole career i've ever felt unsafe in a car and he, he retired at that exact point um but what an amazing man if i had and also i have to forgive him slightly that he did ask my mother on a date back in the day uh, i think was <laughs> my mother was going going up with my father so i'm not sure my father was particularly happy about it but um i don't think they ever went on a date but there we go i'll forgive him for that and um uh, but what, what an amazing man, obviously, hugely missed. And, yeah. and then next question, you know, historic cars and modern cars. I think I know your answer to that. I think you already answered that one, but just in yeah. case. Yeah, historic. Yep. And then best car ever driven? Road car or racing car, or doesn't it matter? Uh, one of each. Uh, racing car, Porsche 917, uh, road car, Ferrari F40. Um, I, I find myself in the somewhat unusual and fortunate position to have driven two 917s. Uh, I've driven a, a sort of standard sports car and I've driven the Can-Am car, the 1100 horsepower, uh, Mark Donoghue thing. And just everything about the 917, just how powerful it was, how successful it was, how yeah. dangerous it was. It just, that just, it just, 
you know, it just presses every button I've got. So, and the F40, I've, I just haven't driven a more exciting road car than that. I just, I, yeah, any chance I get to get an F40, I'll, I'll go anywhere, do anything, do it because they're just, they're just magical things. Yep. And on the other side of the coin, the worst car you've ever driven. <sighs> worst car I've ever driven. I mean, well, I mean, I, I can't stand, and I, I hope nobody listening to this has one of these things, but uh, I really can't abide sort of modern crossover SUVs because they're just not good at anything. Um, they are really lowest common denominator. If I had to name one of them, maybe a BMW X4. Um, but in terms of uh, most disappointing car, probably a Ferrari 348, um, which when it came out in 1990, was just a horrible, tricky, malevolent thing. And I actually drove another one a year or two back um, for a story, and it was just the same. It was still mm. just, yeah, everything I don't want a Ferrari to be, to be honest. Yeah. And then last question, which we've asked all our interviewees, is money, no object, free car garage. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Um, okay, so you've got to have a recreation, a usable car, and a racing car, I think. So the usable car would probably be a brand-new G-Wagon, a diesel G-Wagon. Road, road car, yeah, because I like range and I'm not interested in the performance uh, if it's an everyday car. Um, the road car would be oh, McLaren 720S and the racing car is easy, Alola T70 Mark III B. Yep, good choice. Well, there we go. Well, thank you so much. That's, Andrew, that's been absolutely fantastic. Some great stories and some great insights. And, um, you know, I um, yeah, look forward to hopefully seeing an event, event soon. And, um, yeah, and obviously, any of our readers that haven't been on to Drive Nation, you can follow them on Instagram. It's, is it Drive Nation underscore, I believe? Drive Nation underscore. Yep, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, that would be appreciated. Well, well, Charles, thank you so much for this. It's been, it's been great, great fun. I hope I haven't bored all your listeners to death. Um, and, yeah, all the best with everything. And hopefully I'll catch up with you at a racetrack somewhere soon. Fantastic. Thank you so much, and I'll speak to you soon. 